This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se. Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Hi and welcome to The Global Inn, a show where we discuss different topics on the global radar. My name is Aida and I will be one of the hosts for today's episode. I'm a journalist student and a part of the team that makes the radio show The Global Inn. By my side today, I have David, who is usually not a part of the Global Inn team. Welcome, David. Thank you. Hello. I'm not part of the podcast crew, as Ida said, but I write for Utblick magazine. The reason I'm here today is because I've written an article about the topic of today's episode, which is vaccinations against the COVID virus and the inequitable distribution of vaccine doses around the globe, often painted as the difference between the global north and the global south. Up until this date, 3.2 million people have passed away due to the virus, and the pandemic has led to a global economic crisis. We wanted to dive into the state of some of the countries in the Global South who are suffering from the pandemic. In this episode, we will take a closer look at Latin America. It is quite known that Brazil has been suffering, but other countries within the region are also facing a difficult time, and some won't be vaccinated in the near future. We will be discussing what is happening in the region right now, how the countries will be affected by the unequal vaccination distribution, but also look into initiatives against inequitable distribution of vaccine doses, like the COVAX initiative and the People's Vaccine. To help us unravel this topic, we have Edme Dominguez-Reyes. Welcome, Edme. Thank you very much. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Yes, I come originally from Mexico, but I have been living in Sweden for the last 40 years, I think. And um, my area of studies is international relations and gender studies. But particularly, I focus on Latin America. And I work at the School of Global Studies, mainly with the courses on Latin America, but also on international relations and gender. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. So... Edme, could you start off by taking us through the current state regarding the COVID virus in the region of Latin America? Yes, well, the situation in Latin America is uh, extremely serious. This is one of the continents that has suffered most up to now of the COVID pandemic. And uh, as of April 2021, one of the countries that have reported most deaths is Brazil after the United States. And it was followed by countries like Argentina, Chile, and Mexico. In total, the region has registered about 28 million people suffering from COVID and 1 million fatalities. This is a huge calculation according to official sources, but according also to some calculations from people following these realities. So this is quite a bad situation in which we have countries, as I said before, that are suffering most, and that is the big countries of the region, like Brazil and Mexico, but also Chile, Colombia, Venezuela. And if we speak about the the region as such, we find that there are several strategies the countries have followed. One of the strategies was has been lockdowns, but this is not followed by all countries in the region. On the contrary, there are, I think, fewer countries following this kind of restriction than uh, the rest of the countries. So Brazil has followed in some cities, 
this lockdown, but not for the whole country, because, and that has been one of the problems in Brazil, the chaotic administration of this crisis, where the president says one thing and local governments say something else. And uh, other countries like Mexico have followed a non-lockdown restriction policy in which, yes, there are several recommendations for people not to go out or to stay uh, working at home, precisely like in Sweden, uh, trying not to be too restrictive. So this has been a, a policy that has been extremely criticized and also has been considered responsible for so many deaths in Mexico. And regarding the economy, the economy has suffered enormously in Latin America from minus one decrease in economic growth to minus 35, depending on the country. Are there anything uh, like, except for, I mean, everyone's affected by the, uh, or economic has has decreased because of the pandemic, but are there any reasons that Latin America is especially suffering? Well, one of the reasons that Latin America is especially suffering is because it is extremely uh, integrated in globalization. And it depends very much on its exports and imports. So the continent has been one of the most successful ones in the sense of being integrated into the global economy. And when the global economy closed down, as in the pandemic, then these countries have suffered very much. Another reason for this suffering is the enormous size of the informal economy. So it has been calculated that for most of these countries, we have between 50 and 60% of the economy considered to be informal. And that means that these people working in in such an uh, informal economy have absolutely no access to most rights like health or even other kinds of insurances. So this is one of the causes of this enormous economic suffering. But as I was going to say, this varies very much. We have, for example, countries like Brazil that has decreased 9% of its economic growth, Chile minus 6 and so on. So we have a very different situations, but all join in this uh, enormous uh, depression of the economies. Perhaps I would like to go into the comparison of two cases. Yes, please. Uh, and, and, and in these cases, it's going to be Mexico and Bolivia because they are extremely different and you could say opposing each other. Mexico is considered to be one of the most industrialized and biggest economies in the region together with Brazil. And also one of the biggest countries in the region with 128 million people. Here, this present government has been very cautious regarding the kind of economic support to the economy. So very little has been done regarding the support to the private sector, to industry or to trade in general. So the economy has suffered a lot because the government has refused to come into its rescue arguing that that would mean going into indebtedness and the present government wants to avoid this. On the contrary, they want to rely on their own resources and that means a lot 
of cuts, uh, social cuts in all sectors of the economy. That was even before the pandemic, but it has continued during the pandemic. So instead of supporting these sectors, and I mean health, and I mean schools, etc., the government has been cutting a lot of their resources. And of course, as I said before, not helping the economic sectors that have been mostly damaged. Mexico, perhaps in a certain similar way as in Brazil, didn't take really seriously the pandemic in the beginning. And the president, López Obrador, had the same kind of attitude as Trump in the United States or Bolsonaro in Brazil saying, no, but this is not really as serious as they say. And he refused to to use this mask from the beginning. He still is not using it. And so this had an enormous influence in how people perceive the danger of this pandemic. People critic of the policies the government has been following say that if the government had taken serious measures from the beginning and taken it seriously, it could have meant that 200,000 people could have been saved and not been fatalities in this pandemic. So According to the official figures, it's about 300,000 dead because of this pandemic. But according to other calculations, it's about half a million people dead. Now infected, according to official figures, it's about two million and a half people. In Mexico. In Mexico. And so I said, this is one of the countries that has suffered most in the world. But uh, now with the vaccinations, Mexico has both a lot of vaccines from all sources, including China and Russia. And it has gone very quickly into these vaccination campaigns. So uh, up to now, uh, the government and local governments have been able to vaccinate about 11% of all the people. That's like Is, some yes? of the- I mean, that's quite similar as uh, some European countries in Mexico. Yes. Then. Yeah. Yes. And what is the, the what is the state in Bolivia then? In Bolivia, the strategy from the beginning was a lockdown. So during several months in 2020, since March, you could say, up to the middle of the year and even during the autumn, there was a severe lockdown. And I can tell you, it was very, very restrictive because I was there. I was stuck (laughs) in Bolivia during the spring. Everything was closed, especially the airports. So I had no way to come home. And I was in the same situation as many other tourists in Bolivia. We were taking from there from a charter flight from Germany because uh, Sweden didn't care so much about their nationals there. How they continue. Bolivia has been hit by political instability since before the pandemic. That means at the end of 2019, there was a not a a military coup, but yes, a change of a quite dramatic change of government in which the president had to resign. And so a new government uh, to the right came into power. And that was the government that put the lockdown. But at the end of the year, there was a new change of government, new elections, and the old party in power, 
that was represented by Evo Morales, but not himself coming back. And they decided not to have more lockdowns. That meant that the infection grew enormously during the last part of 2020. And it has... Um, and what is the situation right now the in situa- Bolivia? This, yeah, the situation is that cumulated, we have around three, 13,000 dead. That's for a population of 11 million people. So it's and quite similar to Sweden then? It's very similar to Sweden in about 307,000 infected. So, uh, but in different, uh, in contrast to Sweden, Bolivia has a very bad health system. It was absolutely not prepared for such a crisis, such a pandemic crisis. So you have a very small state health system and the rest of it is completely privatized. And regarding the vaccines, well, they have been able to get quite a lot of vaccines. They have been able to buy buy from Russia and China, some other from AstraZeneca. And recently they started to receive COVAX. 94,000 doses just came. They have been experiencing a lot of problems also in this vaccination effort, but finally they have been able to give vaccination to several people aged 60 years or older. Okay. And the economic consequences for Bolivia have been also very, uh, very big, quite huge. Their economic growth descent decreased 7%, nearly 8% during 2020. There are a lot of countries in Latin America or some countries where the vaccination will be delayed, at least compared to to European and Western countries. What are the consequences for these countries? The consequences of a delay in the vaccination is that the pandemic will continue and it will cost a lot more casualties. And also the consequences will be economic. And as I said before, the situation is quite serious, even though there are some optimistic calculations, for example, regarding Mexico, that uh, it will grow nevertheless during this year. They, the, the figures have varied very much, but they say from one to four percent, it will have economic growth. But the, the but I mean the economic, countries, the economic consequences. Surely they have um, they affect the social and health aspects as well. Exactly, exactly. The economic consequences are extremely serious, especially for uh, the sectors that are weakest in society. And the small countries, for example, in Central America, in the Caribbean, they are suffering a lot because of this pandemic and they are not getting the vaccines. When we speak about COVAX, I will explain how is the situation of distribution of COVAX in these countries. But these small countries that are already poor are uh, suffering a lot. And I speak especially of Central America. And that's part of the reasons we see such an enormous uh, migration, caravans of people trying to reach the United States from Central America. This is one of the consequences, apart from the economic situation already with with the pandemic and the violence situation in all these countries. So So I thought we could uh, move on to the COVAX initiative that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. 
that is by now frequently discussed. Uh, but first, we need to explain that COVAX is the only global initiative that is collaborating with governments and vaccine manufacturers. And it's co-led by the World Health Organization with the aim of accelerating the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines and making them accessible to every country in the world. And one of the main goals with the initiatives is to distribute doses for 92 low and middle income countries who lack the purchasing power to provide their own vaccines. COVAX's ambitious distribution plan is to immunize 20% of the population in these low and middle income countries by the end of this year. So I thought that we could maybe discuss COVAX in a global perspective first. So Edme, how do you think that this initiative will be able to make the vaccine distribution more equal? I'm not so um, convinced by this COVAX effort. Why? Because I think it, it, it's, it's a positive step from the industrialized countries and of uh, institutions like the World Health Organization and this Alliance for Vaccinations, etc. But I think they have been too optimistic regarding the ambitions they have. They have. They are having already a lot of problems regarding the access to vaccines, regarding the uh, the means, the economic means, and the cost, and and also the bureaucratic work it implies. This distribution of vaccines. And let me put it in this way: I think that Covax represent some kind of band aid to a huge hemorrhagic problem and I think it will be able to cover some of the needs but very very few in comparison to what other kinds of initiatives could try to do so I have been critical of COVAX because of this and I can tell you if we go into Latin America yes we can move on to Latin America and um and elaborate a little bit of how it's been progressed in Latin America so far. Exactly. So, uh, as you said before, COVAX is supposed to cover uh, the needs, not only for poor countries, but also middle-income countries. Right. And uh, you have different kinds of regimes for COVAX. One is dealing with uh, middle-income countries, that are paying themselves for these COVAX vaccines and have special conditions and special contracts to do this. And we have 14 countries in Latin America that have signed such contracts. That means Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, and Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are five countries that are sufficiently poor to apply for donations you could say that they don't have to pay for these vaccines and in latin america these five countries are bolivia el salvador haiti honduras and nicaragua So uh, these are two different kinds of regimes, and that could be very good if they can really rely on COVAX, but they cannot do that. And uh, as late as yesterday, I was reading some news on this. I can tell you that COVAX deliveries started in March to Colombia, and it continues and promised that 22 million doses would be delivered by the end of May. But up to April 22, only 18% 
of these deliveries had arrived. In some of the poorest countries like Paraguay, IT have not received anything. Like Guatemala, that is going to pay for that. Some officials from Guatemala were saying that COVAX was a disaster. The only country that has not joined COVAX up to now in Latin America is Cuba. And why? Because they have plans to produce their own vaccine. Mm. And they are uh, very close to do that during the fall this year. And then they plan to vaccinate the entire population with this domestically produced vaccine. Mm. And I wanted to highlight this case because that's part of my argument to why COVAX is not the solution. Mm. And, and a main problem with the initiative is that it's competing with every country in the world, right? And especially exactly. then the largest economies that has, that in the beginning of this pandemic uh, was contracting uh, bilateral agreements with these different pharmaceutical companies, right? So that's one reason why COVAX, it's not really, uh, it doesn't have the budget and it doesn't have, it's also very in the end of the queue in one way, since seeing that US, for example, and Great Britain is in front uh, of this queue and has already purchased a lot of doses. So that is one, one, one reason why this initiative is, is lacking. Exactly. And and as I said before, I mean, even what they have promised, they are not being able to deliver. Bolivia, Colombia, El Salvador, Peru, together, the four have received only about 400,000 doses, which is not much for their needs. So the situation is very complicated. And you have even very poor countries that like Haiti, which is considered the poorest country that uh, was going to receive AstraZeneca vaccine. But because of the situation or the credits to AstraZeneca is turning down its second round allocation, it's not receiving this vaccine. Mm. And as you said before, the rich countries are hoarding these vaccines, but not only that, the vaccines, they are they don't like so much like AstraZeneca these are the vaccines they are sending to COVAX you mm. see and and of course some countries are turning them down mm. so so I would I would say um, that a proponent for the COVAX initiative would probably say that the, the most important reason why it's lacking as it is right now is because they're not getting the funding that is needed from mm. the largest economies and number two, that the doses are not, they're not enough, simply, that the production of vaccine doses have been slowed down recently. Uh, what would you say about this, that these are the two main problems with the initiative? I don't think they are the two main problems. I think that apart from this funding in the production of the vaccines, the whole initiative is like charity from above. And I don't think that is the solution. So for me, the, the, we have to turn upside down and say, we have to think of something else, which is not this generosity or charity from the big countries to stand by and wait until they have enough themselves so they can give us something or what they don't use. 
I think that there was another initiative put together by 100 countries in the WTO, World Trade Organization, in which they wanted to take down patents and intellectual property rights for vaccines and for all kinds of medicine regarding COVID in the sense of permitting several countries to produce for their own needs and for the needs of the region. And I think that would be part of the solution. And that's what several people have called the people's vaccine. Yes, and we will we will move on to talking about this uh, soon. I just wondered, because now there are, very recently there's been countries who've been promising to donate actual doses. Mm-hmm. Um, France and Sweden came out with it yesterday with promising a million doses, unclear when, I think. But do you think that this will help the COVAX initiative, even if you think that, like, that the charity... Pr- problem is is there either way i mean it, now anything can help but it is not the solution covas will never be able to vaccinate all the people who need to be vaccinated in the global south not in the near future that is the, the, the main problem there's been talk about even with covax i think it's not until the end of 2024 right mm, yeah yeah So should we move on to the people's vaccine then? Let's do that. Yeah. So as you just now mentioned that there is the people's vaccine and is... Um, it's another uh, initiative, right? Yes, it's mm. another initiative to uh, make the distribution of vaccines more equitable. And it's been led by India and South Africa uh, primarily. And they are asking fellow World Trade Organization members to agree on a time-limited lifting of COVID-19 related intellectual property rights, also called IP rights. And this means that they want the main vaccine suppliers to share their knowledge and technology so that more countries can produce vaccines for their own population, but also for low income nations. So you've already brought this up, but what is the main reason that this initiative is is better according to you? I think it is better because it decentralizes the production of vaccines and medicines. So it's not only about vaccines, it's about all the kit that you need to treat people from these and future pandemics. And the the issue is that there are several middle development countries, middle-income countries, that have had or still have technological infrastructure to start producing vaccines and medicines. And just look at the at the case of Cuba, which I named before, producing their own vaccines. And Cuba is extremely small, has very, very uh, limited resources, and is being blockaded by the United States. And in spite of everything, they are producing their own vaccines. They have been very well known as a country that has de- developed medicine to extremely high levels. Have they had the uh, infrastructure since before then to produce vaccines? Of course. Cuba, one of the main exports of Cuba has been uh, medical doctors to the whole region in Latin America, especially to to, to countries uh, orientated to the left, like uh, Bolivia, like Brazil, like Venezuela, but also to Africa. Cuba is the country that has the best infrastructure in medicine, in spite of all that 
what they have suffered. And in spite of the fact that the Soviet Union fell and they left Cuba uh, without any resources, etc., and Cuba reestablished itself in, in the sense of still having this infrastructure. So Cuba is an example. Cuba is an example of what can be done. It's not for teachers that it was India and South Africa that started this initiative because they also have the infrastructure to do this, both India and in South Africa, not just to produce a vaccine that has been invented, that has been created in the countries in the north, but also creating their own vaccines. And these kind of initiatives should be encouraged. And now I don't say that all countries should start producing their own vaccines, but I mean, this is a question of spreading patents and intellectual property rights and giving this respect for this IPR doing the time it's needed in order to make as many vaccines and medicines as possible to save most of these people in the global south. So but, I think this is much more promising than COVAX, pushing this technological infrastructure, opening up this IPR, and also decentralizing the whole situation. So um, like a opponent to this uh, people's vaccine and to lifting these intellectual property rights would say that what's lacking is the knowledge, the know-how knowledge and the technology to produce these vaccines. So that's what you usually hear in the in the larger discussion. But you um, contest this uh, discussion? Absolutely. Okay. I contest mm. this discussion. I can tell you from the case of uh, Mexico. I, I come originally from Mexico. Mexico was one of the main producers of vaccines several years ago, already in the 70s. And after this period of neoliberalism, everything was privatized. And many of these vaccines were just acquired by the big pharmaceutical companies. And this is the same case as in Argentina, as the same case as in Brazil. I, I, one of my students is precisely preparing a master thesis on these issues. So what they say, this argument that you mentioned before, is false. Because this infrastructure is there, it was created several decades ago, it can be modernized with the support of these rich countries and given the means to develop. So instead of competing on having these vaccines here and there, produce them everywhere, produce them where they are needed. And for example, you don't have to produce them in every single country, but you have to have certain countries like South Africa in the south of Africa producing for the whole region together, perhaps with Nigeria. And in the case of Latin America, Brazil and Argentina and Mexico producing for the whole continent. And we argue is false because this infrastructure can be modernized and updated. And you have also human resources to do that. There are arguments that this would still not be more efficient than COVAX for the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you agree with this or do you still think that it would be more efficient to use these uh, do as Cuba, as you said? I think that still, even for the COVID, it could be better to start doing it now to start supporting this infrastructure, as I said, now. Because, I mean, uh, the case of Cuba is really extreme, but you have also several efforts for local vaccines 
in the case of Mexico and Argentina for COVID as well. Give them sufficient means to develop, even for this pandemic. As we said before, COVAX is never going to solve this problem in the near future. Well, support all these efforts in different countries in the world to do it. Yeah, and uh, and I just have to add to that, that advocates for the people's vaccine and for lifting these intellectual property rights, what they usually say is that the reason why these pharmaceutical companies don't want to, because none of the companies that has produced a vaccine so far wants to lift these property rights. The, the number one reason is that they, of course, make a lot of money keeping the monopolies as they are right now. And I read uh, just today that Moderna is going to to go, they're going to make a profit of $18 billion only this year. So, of course, there's a lot of money involved in this. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you get even more angry because most of the money they got to develop the vaccines comes from public means. That means they were given this money by the European Union, by the United States. This is our taxes. And they are making a lot of profit of that. But I mean, there's also with the whole the fact that they make so much money, there is the argument that the reason vaccines have been brought forward so quickly this time around is because they there is an economic profit that is, you know, the drive behind these pharmaceutical companies. And what do you have to say about that whole argument of the reason everything is moving so quickly is, you know, the economic drive? Yes. I mean, it's, it's like the banks. I mean, the, all these companies and, and many other transnational companies, I mean, their main aim is profit at whatever cost. And, and I think that a solution could be arrived with a compensation to these companies, a compensation for the loss, perhaps, of part of these profits. So... This could be done through the rules of WTO, the World Trade Organization. This has been done before in the case of HIV, because there have been a lot of conflicts there regarding HIV AIDS. And the cause of, for example, opening intellectual property rights and producing generics, which we, all the medicines that are needed for HIV was won by Brazil, for example, who is one of the main producers of generics. And that meant an enormous difference for the people suffering from AIDS. So let's do that, but much quicker in the case of COVID. Have you been surprised by the unwillingness to share technology patents and know-how during this pandemic? No. Absolutely not. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I have been studying a lot transnational companies' uh, behavior in in the global south, especially in Latin America, and I know how greedy they are. They are extremely greedy. I can give you several examples in which they show a lot of profits at the cost of a lot of a lot of pain of workers, etc. So I'm not surprised at all. This, this greedy is incredible, but it is greed. The US or Biden administration just, I think, like 15 hours ago, um, said that they would discuss uh, the waiver of 
IP rights. Do you find that more surprising? No, I didn't know that, but I don't find that more surprising because I think that part of the campaign of Biden was to make a difference regarding Trump. Trump would never support this kind of thing. On the contrary, he went against everything. And I think Biden, for example, has also done a very recent rectification of its migration policy. And and I think that's part of his legitimacy in the sense of really making a difference. Mm. So um, if we're going to take a look into the future, what potential do you think that uh, the two different initiatives that we mentioned today might have for the future vaccination programs? Let's say that we will have another pandemic like this in 10 years from now. Do you think COVAX will be the initiative that is the, the blueprint or... What do you think? I think it depends very much on the world order that we have in 15 years. But I can tell you that this pandemic has a lot of lessons to give. It can show us the way to prevent by preparing, as I said before, all these middle-income countries with more technological infrastructure so they can start producing medicines, vaccines, and reacting very quickly to any kind of pandemic. And it, so there is a lot of potential given the right support and infrastructure for dissemination of this production of vaccines. This is an enormous potential. If we choose the right way and not the charity way. So I think that this is the big potential. I don't think there's a lot of potential for initiatives like COVAX. I think this is limited and I think it can have very good will. I don't question that, but I don't think it's as efficient as these People Back Science initiative could be. Because um, one thing that might be a problem, let's say that the people's vaccine would actually be legit tomorrow, that countries would actually believe in this initiative. Do you think it would be problematic having two different global initiatives operating at the same time? It may be problematic because then you will have less countries interested in the initiative from COVAX. If they see that it's more, much more efficient to wait until this vaccine comes from Cuba, for example, why should they engage in having a contract with COVAX? So, yes, I think that can be a collision, but perhaps it can be a compromise as well. COVAX can also, for example, focus in certain geographical areas where there are not so much middle-income countries like in parts of Africa and help them much more, where other regions can be helped by the regional middle powers. So it can be some kind of combination of both initiatives. Mm, Right. And at least personally, I feel like it's quite optimistic if we take a look into the future that we've seen that intellectual property rights have been lifted before, just as you said, with HIV back in the 90s. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could say anything about what these initiatives would mean for the Latin region in the future. For the Latin American region. Yes. Uh, Sorry, Latin American region. (laughs) Yes. It could mean a lot. Because, as I said before, in Latin America, we have several middle-income countries, what we could call emerging powers, that can be prepared to take this challenge. 
And given the right conditions and the right support, technological support, they could start making a production of their own vaccines and trying to reproduce also the vaccines that are already in the market. And in that sense, cover the whole region. So I'm speaking about countries like Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Chile, in Peru, I don't think Venezuela has the right conditions because of the critical situation in Venezuela. And also countries like Costa Rica and Central America may have these conditions. So I think it could mean a lot for Latin America. Very interesting. Okay, so to summarize. Let's summarize. Today we've had a conversation with Edme Dominguez-Reyes about COVID-19 in the Latin American region, the current situation, and about the different initiatives to decrease the inequitable distribution of vaccines during this pandemic and what this would mean for the Latin American region in the future. And with us today, we've had you. So we want to thank you so much for joining us, Edme. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and for all the great knowledge. Okay, thank you. Thank Mm. you. And thank you, David, for being with us today. Thanks so much. You can find us on any platform for a podcast that you prefer and any music that has been uh, aired in the episode can be found on K103's website. That's it. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.